Well, amen. And uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And Eric, I want to thank you for coming and the band doing a great job. So great to have you here. Worshiping God with you, man. That was great. 1 Peter chapter 2, and uh, we're going to be in verse 13. Um, by the way, another way you can sign up for that foundations is you can fill out a contact card and put it in the back and let me know, all right? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. I'm really excited about uh, this sermon. I think it's really, 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 really important uh, for our lives. I know it's important for my life. I'm going to read part of the passage. Here's what I want you to be looking for as as we're walking through this passage and through this sermon today. We're going to be talking about submission, okay? Submission is the topic. This is probably one of the most undervalued, um, underestimated uh, values that we have as followers of Jesus Christ in our culture. We are literally going against the stream of everything that we experience every day. So uh, I I wouldn't say that this is like the ultimate uh, thing that we think about or we go to church and want to hear about. But man, I really believe that God could do some awesome things in our lives if we get this down. So listen for submission in these verses, starting in verse 13. It says here, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So be subject there literally means submit yourselves to, all right? Look at verse 18, skip down. He says, servants, be subject to or submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, okay? And then next week, we'll be looking at husbands and wives and marriage, but look down at chapter 3 and verse 1, and this really, this really reads well to women in our culture, verse 1, chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject or submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So you can see that there's a long section here, starting in verse 13, going through, and the topic that Peter really wants to get on the table For these churches, these Christians being exiles, learning to follow Jesus in a fallen world, he's getting on the table, if you want to be light, if you want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to learn the very important idea of submission in your life. This is an important topic in your faith and in your life. And what is submission? Submission, ultimately, I would define it like this. It's giving permission to people to be leaders in your life that God has placed over you. That's submission. Like God has placed people over you, and you are to give them permission to lead you because God put them there to lead you. It's a willing, obedient, decisive thing that you and I practice in our life. And what's tricky about this passage, or I shouldn't say tricky, but powerful, is he says here in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every, everybody say every, every human institution. 
That means no matter what organization you find yourself in, no matter what community, no matter what group, if there's a leader in that group, your job is to give them permission to be your leader in your life. If that's a volunteer organization and there's leaders in that, you give them permission. If it's a 5K run, charity run for children in St. Jude's and there's a leader and you're wanting to help out, you say, where do you want me to help out? I'm going to give you permission to be leaders. If it's the soccer moms group that provides the juicy fruits for the kids, see, it doesn't matter what the institution is, you are to give permission to people in your life to be your leader that God has placed over you, that is submission. And that, that can be really difficult, especially for us Americans. We're individualistic. We, we've got this. I, I think about my culture. I think we live in a I got it culture, don't we? We live in a culture that's like, like I can do this. I got it on my own. I remember in my own life, I've never struggled with this, right? Never. Except for when I was young and dating Sherry, baby. And I, I met Sherry. And, uh, and you know what you do when, you, when, you're, when you're dating somebody? The ultimate goal is to look as good as you possibly can when you're dating them, right? And I knew she was the one. I was like, this is the one. And I was like, I got to look taller, right? So I'm wearing like high boots and stuff, you know? And I got to look stronger, right? So working out and running and stuff like that. I got I to gotta be smarter than I usually am because I can't let her know that I'm as dumb as I am until after I marry her, right? That's the trick. Third date in, most romantic date in the world, I got invited, I was 20 years old, got invited to go preach at a small, little itty-bitty Methodist church in Tuttle, Oklahoma. Now, let me tell you about Methodists. They know how to eat. Can I get an amen? Especially those small ones. We literally walked into this little itty-bitty, I'm dating Sherry, it's third date, we're still getting to know each other, walk in, and there is like 50 pies. There was more pies in this church than there were people, Okay. Because Methodists can fall more in love with food than Jesus sometimes, right? And I go in, and I was the preacher. I was kind of the guest speaker. And there was this guy, and he was clearly the leader of the worship service. And he came to me, and he said, here's the way it's going to go. We're going to open. We're going to have a hymn. We're going to have a thing. You're going to do the Apostles' Creed, because that's what we do as Methodists. We do the Apostles' Creed. And there's going to be a pastoral prayer. And what I want you to do is I want you to lead the church in the Lord's Prayer, And you know what I said? I got this. And he said, here's what you need to do. Take the Lord's Prayer with you. I've got it here printed out. Take it with you. And I was like, don't need it. Looked at Sherry. I was like, don't need that. I got this. And I got up. And that was back in the days when the pastors used to sit up on the platforms. How many of y'all went to a church where the pastor sits up on the platform? He's the big daddy. And I'm up there. I'm the big daddy in a little itty-bitty church in the country, right? I'm sitting in the chair. I'm looking at Sherry going, I got this. I'm looking at the con. I got this. I get up. And I use my Methodist, you know, swallow communion rail voice like, Beloved, I am now going to lead you in the Lord's Prayer. And I was like, man, they must be impressed. Sherry must be impressed. And I started, so I said, bow, please. And they bowed. And I went to go say the Lord's Prayer. And guess what came into my brain? A donut, okay? (laughs) Tumbleweed is passing through my brain. Crickets are going off in the little church. And Sherry is saying to herself, I don't think he's the one. (laughs) Right? 
I didn't know what to do. I swear there was, if I'm lying, I'm dying. There was like 30 seconds of silence. They're just bowing their head. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I can't remember. Oh, how do you start the Lord's Prayer? And it was like the Holy Spirit just said, cry out to God. Just cry out to God. And I went, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I thought to myself, you idiot. Do what the little man told you to do. Take the sheet up. If your leader says, take a sheet up, don't say, I got this. Take the sheet up. And when I look out in culture, and I look in our homes, and I look in society, you know what? We got a bunch of people who don't do what their leaders tell them to do because they got this. And you know what they end up doing? They stumble on themselves. They fall down. They make fools of themselves. I know I've done it a million times. And you know what God says? God says, here's a trick. You want my very best in your life? It's going to come through leaders in your life. It's going to come through accountability. And your job is to follow leaders that God gives to you. And we ask ourselves, man, how can I do that? Because I really struggle. We all struggle. We've been swimming in this swampy sea of, of meism culture. How can we do this? What, what's the secret that Paul is going to, or that Peter is going to give to us in 1 Peter to walk in this? I really think that primarily he tells us why. He motivates us by telling us why we need to give permission to leaders in our life that God has given to us to lead us. He tells us why. And I'll tell you what, and secretly, is what I'm going to do. As we're talking about why we should submit, in there we'll talk about how to submit as we're talking about the why, all right? So why should I give permission to people to be leaders in my life that God has placed over me? And the first answer to that why question is because that is God's plan. It is God's plan that things operate with leaders and followers. You can see this. When he says here, and it's a very provocative text, he says in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake. It's a very God-centered perspective. Lord's sake to every human institution. And then he begins to give examples. And he talks about the state. Whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, the reason why I read that again and I repeat that passage is because it's so provocative. You know who the emperor was when Peter wrote this book? The emperor was Nero. Nero was the first guy that really started doing some really bad things to Christians. You all know about the fire, I'm sure. And what's really provocative is that ultimately Nero would be the one who would execute Peter himself for his faith. So here's Peter saying, I know Nero's bad, but your job is still to give permission to the emperor. So I don't know what your politics are today, and believe you me, I ain't going there. Can I get an amen? But no matter what you think about politics, let me tell you something. It's not as bad as Nero. It's just not. You say He says, be subject to Nero's the emperor or to governors. Guess who was still a governor at the time of this writing? Pontius Pilate. Still a governor. And Peter knew that Pontius Pilate was responsible, it goes without saying, for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We know about Felix in the book of Acts. He was a leader. He was a governor. 
And he, he says that we still are to give them permission to lead us. And we, we go, why should I? One reason why is we know that Jesus himself submitted himself to Pilate, didn't he? At no point in time. And I love the part where Jesus is like, you know, you guys, uh, at any point in time, I could call down like some angels and they could come and do some ninja stuff off with your head. But I'm not going to. I'm going to submit. Jesus is our ultimate example. Why should I? He says here in verse 15, as clear as day, look at verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Ultimately, he says, listen, it is the will of God. That we have relationships that we have to submit to. And let me tell you guys something. Listen to me. This is not just because of sin. It's not like sin came into the world and then God was like, oh no, sin. We've got to have leaders and followers. Leaders and followers is rooted in eternity past within the Trinity himself. The Trinity itself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All equally essence. All equally divine. And yet within that relationship is a functional subordination. The Son to the Father. The Holy Spirit to the Father and the Son. Remember Jesus walked and he said, I submit all of my life to the will of the Father. It's rooted in the Trinity. This is the way God operates. Not only the Trinity, but think about angels. How many of y'all know that if you were to study angels in the Bible, there's a hierarchy of angels in the Bible. There's the seraphim, which are the highest angels in Isaiah 6. They're above the throne, and they're, they're circling that throne, and they're worshiping God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And then in Ezekiel chapter 1, you have, you have cherubim and living creatures who are below the throne. They're actually looking up to the throne. In the New Testament, Jude, verse 9, it talks about Michael. Who is Michael? Michael is the archangel. That means Michael's got some, he's got some angels under him that he leads, that he tells them what to do. And those angels willingly submit to their leaders. This is the way God set it up. And why does God set, set it up like that? Why does God arrange creation and eternity and all these things with this series of hierarchical relationships? I'll tell you why. Because it forces angels and human beings and all living things to admit that God is ultimate, that they are not. And by submitting to leaders, by humbling ourselves under leaders in the will of God, from angels to you and I, we are acknowledging that there is ultimately one above us all, and that is God. We believe in authority, amen? We believe in leadership, and the reason why we believe in leadership is because God is the creator. He's the ultimate leader. It's the will of God. You see, ultimately, that's why he says, listen... You are to live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. He's saying every relationship that you have where you have to give permission to a human being to be your leader, even those you don't necessarily like all the time, the, the humility it takes requires you to get before God and to go, God, you are more than enough for me. 
I don't need this guy to be perfect, and I don't need to be in charge of my own life because you are in charge. In obedience to you, I'm going to humble myself and give permission to this person who you've placed over me, and I'm going to help them. I'm going to support them. I'm going to be their biggest fan. I'm going to help them do what you've called them to lead me to do, even if secretly sometimes I think I could do the juicy fruits a little bit better. You see, it's a radical thing. Let me, let, me, let me just tell you guys something. If there's somebody who's just getting used to Christianity, Christianity is a radical thing. It is a transformative, revolutionary way of thinking about life. And we are tapping into it right now. It's not about going up and being stronger. It's about going down. It's about humbling ourselves. It's about saying there's a God and I'm not him. And he's put people in my life to follow. I'm going to follow him. Now, in this passage, i got to do one qualification as we talk about the plan of God and leadership and government and everything like that. There are exceptions to this regular rule of submitting, especially to the state. And I've got to talk about this really quick. Because the Bible says, listen, you are to submit to the leaders that God has placed over you in, in terms of the state. What's that look like in terms of our relationship to the state? And this is a big debate, church and state, Christians and their relationship to politics. Can I tell you just really quick, the way we submit is we pray. Everybody say pray. We pray for our leaders. Pray for Springfield. Amen. Pray for your Congress. Pray for your president. Pray that God would work in that situation. You pray. Here's the second thing. You pay. Everybody say pay. We pay our taxes, right? I mean, Jesus said, give to Caesars what's Caesars, and to God's what's God's. That means that we pay. We are fortunate. We are, we are really blessed in our culture, different from these first Christians, that you participate. That means is that if you have the opportunity to be a part of praying for and trying to get the very best leader you can, you can vote for that. Dude, do it, right? Now, the outcome you need to submit to, but participate, be informed, and outside of that, that's how you submit to the state. But here's the thing. There are exceptions. There are times when civil disobedience is necessary. And let me give you just a couple of times when that's necessary. The first thing is this, is that if the state comes and says you cannot practice evangelism, right? Let's say they come and they say you can no longer propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then, listen, at that point in time, we break away from our submission. We say, listen, we have been charged by the gospel to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. We share Jesus. Amen? Too many martyrs. Remember Acts chapter 4 when Peter, they said to Peter, listen, we're going to let you out of jail, but what we want you to do is you can no longer speak or preach in the name of Jesus Christ. Remember what Peter said? He said, listen, if you think it's okay to, to please man and not God, that's up to you, but I'm, I'm here to please God, and I cannot keep or forbid myself from sharing what I know about God and Jesus Christ, so come and arrest me if you want. I mean, if you want to come and tell me to pay taxes, I'm going to pay taxes. If you come and tell me to drive 55 miles per hour, I'll get that most of the I mean, sometime. You know, I'll try. But if you tell me not to, not to preach Jesus, then we're done here. Like civil disobedience, right? 
Or if the state comes and it says, hey, you have, to, you have to do immoral things. You have to participate in immoral activity. At that point in time, you got to break away. The Bible is very clear that if the state comes and makes you do something against what God in your conscience has called you to do and is clearly biblical, then you can't do that. Uh, the example I have is the, the Nazis, when they were ri- making their rise in Germany, one of the things, their first strategy was to take over the churches. And they would go into the churches and they say, hey, listen, we're the Nazis. We're good. We're going to make Christianity really great in Germany. We're going to have a great Germany. It's going to be better than ever. It's going to be really great. Wink, wink. And hey, you preachers, here's the sermon series that we need you to preach, all right? And the sermon series is going to talk about, you know, this Fuhrer guy, you know, Adolf Hitler. He's pretty cool. And you need to talk about him. And most Unfortunately, in Germany, most of the pastors gave in to that, and they submitted to the government, and they started letting the government determine what was preached in the pulpit. But there were some pastors that said, you know what, can't do it. One of those guys by the name was a guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? And there was another guy you might not have heard of. His name was Martin uh, uh, Nyler, I think is the way you say his name. My German's not very good. But he was a pastor, and he got arrested because he wouldn't. He wanted to preach certain things, and the Nazis were like, you can't do that. So he goes to jail. And his pastor friend visited him in jail and said, hey, Martin, man, I mean, I'm pastoring at my church, and they let me talk about most of the things I want to from the Bible, only a few things they don't want us to talk about. Why are you in jail? Just don't talk about those things anymore, those few things, those bullet points, and and then you can get your church back and your pulpit back. You don't have to be in jail. And Martin looked at his buddy and said, listen, the question isn't why am I in jail? The question is why aren't you in jail? Because the issue for us is we reach a point in time when we say, listen, civil disobedience is necessary. It's rare. It should be the last recourse. But at the end of the day, those are some exceptions. Are we there right now? No. Hallelujah. Praise God. We have a government for the most part. It's okay. I know that there's problems. There's things we're praying about. There's there's things that we need to pray about desperately. But for the most part, we give permission for leaders that God has placed over us to be leaders in our life. You see, this is the plan of God. This glorifies God by us being submissive, by giving permission to people to be in leaders in our life. Not only is it God's plan, but here's the second thing. He says, okay, that's the plan over you, but let me show you. What's great about God is God comes down and he patterns for us what submission really looks like. And let me pick it up in verse 18. Look at this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Peter says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only, to do, not only the good and gentle, that is the, the good masters and the gentle masters, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, and when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
Now, quickly, just talking about kind of the exegesis of this passage, you've got, you've got Peter talking about masters and, and really literally slaves. And really, the Roman world really operated off of a slave system. Uh, and that meant that there were people that owned people to do jobs for them. Now, those slaves could work their way out of slavery. They could purchase their freedom if they did enough work. But most of this culture had a lot of master-slave situation. Now, in some of those situations, it wasn't that bad. Like doctors were slaves, tutors, teachers. Sometimes slaves were way more educated than their masters were. In other situations, slaves were mistreated. They were beat. They were harmed and everything like that. There's really no getting around the fact that there was an evil institution of slavery in the New Testament, different than the American institution of slavery, but in some ways very similar. So some people come to the Bible and they go, why didn't the Bible, why didn't Peter just say, man, we need to take to the streets and get rid of this system of slavery? One of the reasons why is because the Christian movement was so small. It was just this little itty-bitty movement, and it was really unrealistic to talk in those terms. And really what Peter's purpose is, is it's to provide people comfort and strength and resources to be able to deal with the harsh realities of their life. And that's what he's doing right here in many cases. And what's even more interesting is that when he talks about when he talks about masters being unjust, you could circle that word. That word unjust means crooked or immoral, somebody who, who, who does things wrongly or not rightly, um, somebody who has an immoral kind of crooked nature in the way that they lead. And what he's saying is that even in those situations, uh, you are to give that person uh, uh, leadership, permission to be a leader in your life, even when they're, in some cases, unjust. And this is a very, th- very difficult thing. Certainly, we can transfer this passage to our own life. We've all had bosses that uh, are not moral people, who are harsh, or who don't do things right, or we think, man, I just... I just don't like that. I remember I had one boss one time, kind of respected him. He was a shrewd businessman, but he was a really harsh man at the same time. I remember one time he threw the F-bomb at me and called me a name. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a little scrapper, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, come on, man. You know what I'm saying? I'll break you down right here, you know what I'm saying? And I walked out and I left. And, you know, God ultimately through that situation, I won't tell you the full story. I can tell you really want to hear it, but... Ultimately, God called me to humble myself, to go back and to work for that man for a significant amount of time. And there were some things I learned, some things I didn't. There's some relationships that we have to have and some bosses or leaders in our life that we got to kind of put up with, at least for a season. And God's calling us to still give them permission to be leaders in our life. We go, how can I do that? And the way we do it is that we look to the pattern of God himself in Jesus Christ. You see that verse 21? What a significant verse. He says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Substitution and substitutionary atonement is not just a historic thing that God did to justify us in the sight of God. Substitutionary atonement is a way of life for the followers of Jesus Leaving you, he says, an example so that you might follow in his steps. I heard somebody say recently, hey, show me who you're following and I will show you who you are becoming. 
Show me who your mentors are. Show me who your heroes are. Show me the people that you're reading or you're, you're modeling your life after. That's the person you're becoming. But for us Christians, the ultimate mentor and, and, and rabbi and teacher and leader is Jesus Christ, is it not? And our job is ultimately not to live for our comfort, but to live to follow Christ. In fact, we get the opportunity to even suffer like Jesus. We get the glory to rejoice in suffering like Jesus, sometimes in the way that we submit to people in our life who are leaders. And so we're desperate for Christ. We're def desperate for Jesus to show us. Show me, Jesus, your pattern of submission. Show me how I can do this even when it hurts me at night, even when I lose sleep, even when it, it hurts so bad. Show me how to submit and to give permission to this leader who I really consider to be immoral in the way he's treating me or she's treating me. And Jesus shows us. He gives us four ways. Are you ready? Four. Here we go. Boom, man. This is going to get practical. Four ways Jesus shows us how to submit even when it's difficult. Number one, don't sin. It says he committed no sin. You're like, now, man, I can't, I, I am not, I am not going to be perfect. And brother, you better stop with this whole being perfect thing. And I get it. Only Jesus is perfect. We will never be perfect this side of heaven. Amen. But you know what he's showing us? Jesus is showing us is that sometimes when we're in a stressful relationship, I don't know about you, but sometimes I go to idols that are sinful I go to escapism, I go to drink, I go, well, I don't, I don't, I, I don't but I'm giving you examples. They're like, dang, he just admitted that. <laughs> he just disqualified himself from ministry. This is, what, this is what people do, right? But we all go to things, we go to things, right, to cope with. I'll tell you one thing I do struggle with. Sometimes when I get stressed out, I spend money. I'm an emotional spender. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand. I get stressed out. I want to buy something. Like a couple years ago, I took my Kohl's card. How many of y'all have a Kohl's card to get rewards points? It's really fun. <laughs> and I was going through a time of stress, and I bought like 10 pairs of jeans. I showed up at home, and Sherry was like, what's wrong? <laughs> I took five back. I was plus five, told Sherry my problems, and felt much better. You know what I mean? You, know, you have to look. You know, you figure out what your idols are. You figure out what your weaknesses are when you're going through stressful situations, unjust situations. You find out who your God really is functionally. What do you go to? What's the sin you go to? What's the thing that helps you to cope? And you know what Jesus did? He kept entrusting himself to the Father. When he felt that pain and he had to submit to circumstances that weren't fun, he entrusted himself to the Father. Number one, don't sin. Number two, he didn't revile. What that word means is he didn't retaliate. Sometimes when you're called to give permission to a leader in your life, you, the, the, the desire for revenge is almost unbearable. How can I get him back? How can I get her back? Sometimes when you got enemies, the thing you want to do the most is get back to them in any way you can. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 and following. I think this is such a great passage because Jesus lived this passage out. But listen to it. He said this, uh, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's Old Testament law. 
But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. What's striking about that passage is that is exactly what Jesus did when he went to the cross. They slapped him. They beat him. They put a crown of thorns on him. They sold his clothes. They stripped him down naked. And then there was the thief on the cross that he gave forgiveness to. He said, will you let me into paradise? And he said, you know what? I'm going to let you borrow all the grace you need so that you can get into paradise. I'm going to let you do this. Jesus didn't retaliate. He didn't take revenge. In fact, he submitted and in the process of submitting was a blessing to people, certainly to us. Our very salvation came down to whether he would take revenge or not. And now that we've been saved in such a way, we are called to walk in such a way, to not retaliate, to not take revenge, to let go of a heart that is vengeful. He didn't revile. He didn't sin. Third thing, he didn't threaten. It says he didn't threaten. Now, if anybody could have threatened his enemies, it would have been Jesus. Amen? Because guess who's got his his hand on the knob, the the thermostat of hell? Guess who can turn up that heat? And he could have said at any point in time, hey, man, you can take my clothes and you can put me up on that cross. Hey, Caiaphas, you can do whatever you want. But let me tell you something, man. My hand is on that thermostat. And there's coming a day when you get down into hell, I'm going to turn it up extra hot for you, man. That fire is going to be flaming for you. That's exactly what Jesus didn't do. He didn't threaten. He didn't use passive, aggressive, covert hostility, intimidation tactics to get back to his enemies. He submitted in all ways. He didn't try to threaten them or try to manipulate them into being scared in any way at all. He didn't threaten. Say, how can I give permission to a leader in my life even when they're not doing things right? Don't threaten. Don't sin. Don't revile. In fact... As opposed to all of that, what we're called to do as followers, it's so counter, counter-cultural, which is why we shine all the more when we do it. We entrust ourselves constantly to God. Verse 23, it says about Jesus, He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's clear in the syntax and the grammar of the Greek, what's being emphasized is that Jesus constantly, regularly, is entrusting himself and his circumstances to God, is constantly giving his life and even his enemies to God for God to deal with. And it says here that Jesus knew that God would deal with them justly, that Christian submission is not stoical like, well, I guess evil's just going to get away with it. I guess darkness will win. I guess immoral activity will win. No, no, no. Our position as followers is that God is judge. And Jesus knew that all evil will be undone by the justice and the judgment of God. God will punish evil. God will do away with and make untrue all of the horrible things that have happened in this world as a result of evil. Jesus knew that. And he entrusted himself to that very idea. Remember what the Apostle Paul said. In Romans chapter 12, verses 19 and following, he says to those Christians, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
To the contrary, for your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We ask ourselves, why is the doctrine of the wrath of God so important? Why is it important to actually believe that there is a real hell and that people will be judged justly by God who will come and judge the living and the dead? And you want to know why it's so important? Because it cleans up the pollution of our own mind and taking revenge and it leaves everybody in the hands of God. And we say to God, you're the one who will judge. You are in charge of wrath, not me. So we can no longer pray people into hell. We can no longer judge them and say, you can go to hell. We can't do that because we are not God. Amen? And so when we walk in that doctrine of the wrath of God, it actually gives us grace and mercy because we don't have to be in charge of righting all the wrongs. This is the pattern of God is submission. He showed us in the way that he died for us as our substitute on the cross. He showed us how to deal with evil. In fact, I would claim for sure as a follower of Jesus, there is no other message in the world that helps us to deal with evil like the Christian gospel. No other message. There's no other philosophical system that can, that can bring that kind of resources to the problem of evil. And that is ultimately why Peter says you have to give people permission, even, even when they're not right, because you're ultimately confessing the gospel as you humble yourself. That's tough. I know. I know one sermon's not going to help us like, be perfect in this, but let us start growing in it. Amen? It's the plan of God, pattern of God, final thing with the time we have remaining. Ultimately, submission is the power of God. It's the power of God. It's the power of God to bring real change. He says here in these closing verses in verse 24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Oh, man, I mean, we should break out in revival with those verses, shouldn't we? I mean, this place should... I don't know why I did that sound effect. But (laughs) I'm getting tired. It's the second service. I haven't had my donut yet. I made a list for myself this week as I was preparing this sermon. I made a list, and I went, what are the things I need in my heart in order to actually submit the way God wants me to. And when I made this list, I was overwhelmed. Here's my list. Let me tell you my list. You can make your own list, but here's my list. It takes humility to submit. It it takes me getting out of me. It takes me not being the most important in the room anymore. Humility. The second thing I I noted that I need in order to give permission to people to be leaders in my life is I need confidence. (laughs) I need to get comfortable in my own skin. I need to find a way to deal with my insecurities, deal with with the stuff that that makes me want to put up the wall and and make sure that I'm not vulnerable in any way. I I need to get confident so those walls can come down and I can stand in this world knowing that in Christ, 
I'm here, and therefore I can submit because I don't have to be the boss. The third thing I noted that I need is I just need trust. I need to trust that God is actually sovereign, that God is he's not like a theory. He's not like a, a religion or some kind of concept that you study, you know, in philosophy 101 at college. Like he's a living God, the sovereign God who's in control of all things and nothing happens by accident. That he's working all things together for the good of those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. Trust, trust, trust. Fourth thing I noted I needed is decisiveness. I have to make a a quality decision every day to submit. Like it's not like a one-time thing like, oh, now I'm submissive to the people I need to be submissive to. It's like every day I have a starting line. Will I give permission to leaders in my life? And guys, I got to tell you, your pastor is struggling in all of those areas. And just like you, I have to find where are the resources. And it's right there. Jesus bore my sin. Jesus has brought me to the overseer of my soul. Jesus is my shepherd. He will take the will. He will take this life. He will lead me. He will empower me. Greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. Amen. I am more than a conqueror through him who loves me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Peter talks about a spiritual, supernatural power that comes from the gospel in believing in Christ. He says, you have been healed by his stripes. You have been forgiven. And now you have power to die to sin and to live for righteousness. Jesus And you know what I want you to do this week and every day for your life is believe that this gospel of Jesus is a living power for those who believe. We are being saved in Christ. All things are becoming new as I surrender to him. And there's something supernatural and spiritual and miraculous about walking and confessing that gospel. But I find that the gospel gives me many things. It gives me humility because I'm forgiven. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Jesus paid the full price. Man, I don't have to earn it. I don't have to achieve it. I don't need ritual. Jesus paid the price. He bore my sin. I'm forgiven. So I'm humbled. Thank you for that gift, Jesus. I'm confident. Because my right with God and my right in this world comes down to not what you say about me, but what God says about me. And what God says about me is I am loved because Jesus died for me, so I have confidence. And and I know that because Jesus died for me, I know that I can trust God because God was willing to do it for me. God didn't just stay up in heaven and go, I hope you get it right. God became a missionary. He left his comfort. He came down. He was born in a cave. He took the cross. You see, God is trustworthy and faithful because he made a promise to save me. He kept that promise so I can trust him with my whole life. If God gave me his only begotten son. How will he not freely give me all things? No, I can trust God today, even when it hurts, even when my boss is no good, even when my pastor struggles, even it doesn't matter. I can trust him, and so I can be decisive because God has given me a right to make a quality decision. There is power in the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Do you believe that? 
God has given me power to give permission to leaders in my life that God has placed over me because it's his plan, it's his pattern, and it's his power. Let's pray. God, you are good. And Lord, we, we know you would have been good if you wouldn't have decided to come and take our sins on the cross. You would have been good because you're holy and you're righteous. But God, you chose in your goodness and in your mercy to come down, and we give you great praise for that. God, I know that breakthrough in many of our lives could come as we humble ourselves in giving permission to the leaders you've given us to follow them, whether it's at work or in a volunteer organization or in church. God, you, you will bring your plan for our life. We will walk in your will and discover things about our life and the direction of our life as we submit. But we need your help. We cannot do it. We need you to shepherd us, Jesus. We need you to be the overseer, the elder, the pastor in our life that is leading us and guiding us gently but firmly, lovingly but boldly, doing things in our heart and our mind that, that will surprise us. Do that, God. And God, we're going to walk out into this culture as exiles. We're going to walk out into this world of rebellion, of insubordination, of godlessness, immorality. We're going to walk out into a dark world. So help us to walk in the light. Help us to follow you in a fallen world by following the leaders you've given to us. If you don't know Jesus today, I just want to invite you to cross that line of faith, to give your life to him. He bore your sin on the cross and he says, anyone who comes to me, I will forgive and free from sin, from darkness. I will make all things new in your life, Jesus says, as you come to him. Call on his name. There's no special magical words. It's just turning from darkness and saying, Christ, I need you. And I believe you died and rose again. And as you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. For the rest of us, let us worship God this week in the way that we give permission to the leaders that God has placed over us. God bless us in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.